This is a conversation on the 2012 Venice Biennale, Common Ground, between Jaffa Kolb, a curator of the Biennale, and Alec Bierig. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Suddenly we're in this like media explosion of like 18 different screens all flashing images of like war, famine, and modernist buildings at you with like a dinosaur roaring over all of them. And it was this crazy, it was completely insane. And people somehow found it a really satisfying way to start the entire exhibition because basically you were like, your brain was erased for a minute, you know? It was like going through like a like in Men in Black when they like flash you and you lose your memory. It's like you would, you'd kind of like wander in like totally baked out of your mind, you know, just like what just happened to me? I feel like I got run over by a truck or something. On January 27th, 2013, Alec Beery Hi, this is Alec Beer. Welcome to Joffer Kolb. Thank you for having me, Alec. The assistant curator of the 2012 Venice Biennale. Or deputy, I would like to think of you as a deputy curator. Into the attention studio to get an insider's view of the ideas behind the curation of such an influential global exhibition of contemporary architecture. Their conversation ranged from addressing some of the historical context for the Biennale the financial and time constraints on the curators and the difficulties they faced in working with architects and maintaining an overall coherence while handling the wide range of people involved and the various media that everyone was working with. Alec and Joffer also addressed some of the criticisms of the exhibition, that it had lost its coherence in engaging such a wide range. The conversation began by discussing the context of the Biennale's history and the way in which its director this year, the architect David Chipperfield, sought to develop his own agenda in relationship to that history. The first architecture Biennale began in 1975, directed by Vittorio Grigotti. Since then, directors that used the Biennale as a platform to launch their own agenda have included Dayan Sujik, Ricky Burdett, Aaron Betsky, and Katsuyo Sejima. When I got there in January, there seemed to already be a kind of intellectual project at play, and that was largely reacting against the recent history of the Biennales. Um, so, I mean, I think David was always quite open about, like, loving Sejimas, for example, but also seeing in it a kind of preciousness and a kind of... Uh, a way of thinking that seemed very closed off. I think Sejima was very, very open about just inviting people who you would associate with her, and um, they all did these very beautiful, incredibly atmospheric, quite immersive installations. Her whole idea was to pare it down so it was one thing per room, and every time you went into a room, you were kind of enveloped by it. And I think um, looking at a few in the years past, um, you know, we were all a little bit skeptical of like what Aaron Betsky did, for example, uh, also what Dan Sujic did, and there was a kind of fear of just kind of having an international network of people giving us their most recent projects. I think for all of us, you know, all of us being a three-person curatorial team, including David, so it was only three of us really thinking through this thing. And um, 
And I think one one thing that we each took was um, there's a book that was recently published by Aaron Levy and Bill Menking where they basically um, interview all the past directors of the Biennale and you can kind of read it. It's like 120 pages, a really quick overview of the last 30 years of the Venice architecture. I mean, the, the architecture Biennale has only been around since the early 80s anyway, so it wasn't that difficult to talk to everyone. But what's really interesting is to think about how it just keeps building and evolving. So, for example, in ours, I think there was a pretty direct connection between what we did and what someone like Ricky Burdett did in 2006. So the idea of the city's exhibition, you know, leading with this, the urban age fact that has now been emblazoned on every T-shirt that an architecture student wears, which is like, you know, as of 2006, the world for the first time ever was more living in cities than not, that whole statistic. But one of the things that came out of Ricky's exhibition, I think, was a complete exhaustiveness in terms of data and statistics. And I think it was all about proving things out numerically. Mm-hmm. Everywhere you look, there were numbers. I mean, it's a whole Urban Age project. Like, this is what the LSE does. It's no joke that they're funded by Deutsche Bank, you know, itself, something that's obsessed with numbers and statistics. And so for us, for example, in, in thinking about what it means to represent the city in our Biennale, I think we were all slightly averse to the idea of having a million statistics on the wall. I just remember thinking how happy I was that we'd kind of made this decision that statistics weren't going to guide our conversation about the city. And the bad effect of that is that perhaps we went a little bit too far in the other direction. It became too phenomenological and it became too unquantitative. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there's a way in which we were looking to that as like, okay, this has been done here already. We want to do something else. This year's Biennale addressed the theme of common ground, with the ambition of asking architects to leave their comfort zone and to reflect, not on what is unique and individual about their own work, but on what is commonly shared or can be commonly shared in a series of collaborations developed especially for the Biennale. And then the intellectual project was actually a title that um, David and Richard Sennett came up with. I think Sennett claims authorship over it, um, and David admits that too, which is this idea of common ground being a thing that's simultaneously interpreted discursively but also urbanistically. So Mm -hmm. the notion of a kind of common public, um, on the one hand, operating with and against the idea of a kind of common ground between architects. As the conversation unfolded, Alec and Jaffer reflected on the challenges that such a curatorial stance posed in terms of the nature of what such a world event like the Venice Biennale is today, and on some of the challenges faced by the curatorial team bringing the show together. In particular, Jaffer addressed some of the difficulties that the team faced in bringing star architects on board with the theme of collaboration, as well as some of the difficulties faced by the team in working on such a restricted budget and timescale. There's an initial starting budget for the entire thing, um, which is actually, in my mind at least, shockingly small. And that's the amount of money that's given over to the director to basically execute the entire thing. And that's from the the Biennale. The Italian government? I think it's done through a trust. So initially, I think the Italian government gives a certain amount per year, but it's also invested through the organization, which is called, you know, the the Institute of the Biennale. Um, So we start with that amount of money, which ends up a very small amount. And then each year it's expected that the director is going to raise their own resources. So I think uh, this year, because of the Italian economy, um, it was particularly bad. And so we started with a very small amount, uh, much, I think, smaller than years past, as I've come to understand it. And I think part of the reason that they wanted David, at least his cynical take on it, was because they knew he would be um, accountable and able to raise a lot more money. Um, 
And so what David did is to go to a lot of his clients and friends and people he knows, and together, you know, he, he kind of pulled off a very impressive Herculean task of raising more than double what we started. Well, when David was actually called to be the director, uh, it was right when Berlusconi was stepping down, and there was a huge political turmoil, and actually the incoming president wanted to replace Paolo Baratta, who's the director of the Biennale on the Italian side, with a new person. And this person, I, I should know his name, but I forget it, he's the head of the Italian Gatorade, um, some, like, sports drink company. And he wanted to just change everything, and, you know, it would have been a disaster, I think, because he didn't, you know, Baratta has had a long history in arts and culture, and this guy was kind of coming out of left field. So this kind of compromised the entire time schedule for David being announced. As the conversation progressed, the discussion revolved around how one maintains a coherence in the exhibition as a whole, when the idea of collaboration tends to expand the numbers of people involved exponentially, and how one mediates between the two sides of the common ground theme, between the glossy world of star architecture, with star architects being asked to engage in collaboration, and the documentary realism of the city as a common ground. Alec also questioned Joffer on some of the more pragmatic details of how one works within an expanding field of media in exhibitions, and how this further exacerbates the difficulty of forming a coherent whole. But to begin with, Alec began by asking Joffer to describe his role on the curatorial team. So, um, uh, listeners probably don't know you uh, or your role, uh, perhaps secret role in the Venice Biennale. So could you take us through what you, what your maybe title was and what kind of things you did uh, for the Biennale? Uh, sure. So first thing, um, I was hired while I was at Princeton as an MARC student, um, which I've just recently completed. Uh, and when I was first hired for the Biennale, it was to do a... Uh, to basically be a, a, a curator on a team of two curators working for the director, David Chipperfield. Um, so David hired me and uh, one other person, uh, this guy called Kieran, to do the majority of the curation. Uh, so I moved in January to London and did that. Uh, but then, of course, curating, you know, the sector of the Biennale that we were working on, which was the main international exhibition, only took uh, a couple of months because the timeline was so quick. So when I was hired in January, it was with the turnaround that the opening would be at the end of August. Um, so the whole project was only eight months long. And so I started by, by working as a curator, by helping select teams, come up with ideas of who we wanted to invite, etc. Um, when I got there, David already had a pretty specific idea of who he wanted to invite, but he had only come up with about half the people that he wanted in total. Um, so I started for the first couple months working on that. And then starting in, in March and April, I moved to Venice, um, where I stayed until the opening, and sort of became an on-site project manager. So I oversaw the budget for the whole thing, um, including you know working with David on all the fundraising. And then um, come summertime, I oversaw all the installation work on all the exhibitions. So it was kind of, it started as a kind of intellectual project and then turned into a kind of project management and um, execution rule. Okay, so for those of us uh, who've never been to a BNL, can you uh, just take us through? Uh, you mentioned an international section and national sections. Can you just quickly like tell us about how many uh, people are involved and the kind of scale of operations? Right. So basically, the way that Venice works, it's obviously different from all the other ones. Um, is that the entire exhibition uh, is made of two different parts. One is the international exhibition, which is what the director is in charge of, and 
That takes place in the Arsenale. Um, we basically use the majority of the Arsenale and save a small portion for some of the national exhibitions. And the central pavilion in the Giardini, which is the other main international space. Um, so that's kind of half of the Biennale. And the other half of the Biennale is, is the national pavilions. So um, every major country um, and many smaller, more recent editions have happened. Um, there, are, so I think. What, what's a major country? Uh, yeah, I'm going to shoot myself <laughs> in the foot with this. Major <laughs> Western European American countries, I should say. Yeah. Um, but the major ones that people know of that you have associations with because they're often published more are like Great Britain, Germany, France, uh, America, Canada, Australia, Austria, um, Japan, China, um, Italy, et cetera, et cetera. And these, are often build, these are often permanent buildings. Yeah, so each of them has a permanent building of this kind of initial set. Um, and these were mostly built in the 20s through 50s. Um, and then recently, uh, the, the Biennale has opened up to more countries. So now they're about 55, but there are only something like 25 permanent structures. And those are all in the Giardini, which is um, adjacent to the Arsenale, but not in the exact same place. It's hard to describe without a map. After giving a basic outline of his role on the Biennale and a brief sketch of the scope of the exhibition, the conversation shifted to discuss some of the practical questions involved in how the team implemented the aspiration to involve architects in collaboration. Well, the original plan um, was that we'd call it Common Ground and uh, it would be almost like a tree diagram. So we would invite 20 people and ask each of them to invite you know, four or five collaborators. And in the end, we'd end up with a list of 80 to 120 or something along those lines. Um, but we would have only planted 20 seeds and they would kind of come back with all of these other things. And that aspiration changed quite quickly because we realized that uh, a lot of the architects we were talking to didn't really have the time, commitment, or necessarily the ability to think in the same way we were. And I think we realized that the curatorial project was getting a little bit too specific without enough time to develop it. I mean, the other problem is that, like, frankly, I mean, I feel like architects are just kind of really difficult people. I mean, as we all know, people wouldn't, would refuse to be neighbors with other people. Yeah. They'd say, like, who am I next to? Be like, we can't tell you. And they'd be like, of course you can't. I'll drop out. Yeah. You tell them, and they'd be like, I refuse. And this happened more times than I can possibly count. And the amount of resistance we got every step of the way to saying, you know, there were certain people that we would just say, look, you cannot show your work. No one is showing their work. And mm -hmm. there's a huge problem. And, you know, the people we invited employed any number of tricks to get around what we wanted, you know, so they would disappear for months on end. They wouldn't return phone calls. Then they would come at the very last minute and say, oh, well, I'm a celebrity and it's too late and you have to accept this project, you know. Uh, there were problems, and the problems emerged from us trying to be con too controlling and from the people we invited being too controlling. <laughs> you know, it's sense, like. And that would be terrible. That would be much worse. But it's like, some sense, it makes me think like one of the best ways to do it would just be to like give all architects, all, all of these architects, like a lot of rope. Yeah. With which to hang themselves. You know, and just like. <laughs> yeah, but that's only if you're not invested in the outcome. Exactly. Like, or I mean, I mean it's just probably it's just it's just cynical. It's yeah, exactly. I, that's that's what I was saying. Invested in an optimistic outcome. I mean, I think that like one of the things. I mean, there's a lot that I I love and respect about David having worked with him, and one of the things that I really respected about him was his constant optimism over this thing. I mean, there were frustrations, there were ups and downs, et cetera, et cetera. That wasn't perfect, but like, there were so many moments when when I and the rest of my team wanted to do exactly that, which is just like, well, let them hang themselves. And I remember saying that about 
so many people at this point, <laughs> like so many, just like, I just want them to come in and look like a total asshole. And, and, um, and our take was like, fine, but then every single critic's going to come in and basically be like, you're the one who wouldn't play. And it's really obvious and it's really embarrassing for you. And David just kind of perpetually resisted that inclination to be cynical and let them hang themselves. And it was just like, no, 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 we have to make them like, we have to bring out the best in everyone who's in it. talked about the tendency of architects this time around to propose films and how you kind of disagreed with that. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, uh, I think one of the things that surprised me most, um, and I should say that there were a lot of times during this that we worried about being too heavy-handed curatorially. I mean, I think that when it comes to something like the Biennale or any exhibition, like part of you wants to just invite people and see what they do, and then another part of you just gets really nervous. And my nervousness really kicked in when we started realizing that every single firm and every team wanted to do two things. One is to use QR codes, which I think is one of the most boneheaded things. Do you know what a QR code is? Those little black and white checkered things. It's like a 3D oh, barcode. Like what the you scan with your phone. Yeah, exactly. So it's like the the Russia Pavilion actually did it quite beautifully because they totally aestheticized it um, as this kind of empty notation system. But every firm we wanted to show was just like, we need to put QR codes on. And it's one of those, it's kind of like mini discs. It's like a technology that's already obsolete <laughs> before it's even been fully implemented. So that was one thing. And the other thing was film. And I thought that the film problem really struck me because... You know, I studied film as an undergraduate, and I care a lot about it, and I think a lot about it. And uh, the problem with architects in film is that, for the most part, they just want to use film as a way of advertising their buildings, mm -hmm. especially when you get to the level of the type of participant that we were inviting. So, you know, as a team, we tried very hard to kind of mix up the participants and invite younger people, people outside of Western Europe. But, you know, in the end, David's world is what it is. And I think that we had to accept as reality that the kind of core of the exhibition was going to be very safe, very considered, and, you know, very successful um, Western European architects, mostly coming from England, Switzerland, Spain, Portugal, etc. And these types of firms, unfortunately, are seduced very easily by film as a kind of dynamic, novel, new means of representation. But when you look at what they actually produce, it's unilaterally a kind of glossy advertisement. And I thought that that was, you know, I already had a, a, a hesitation about film because I think for the most part, I'm underwhelmed by what I see coming out of architect film collaborations. Um, but then when I actually started seeing the specific products of these ideas, I was just completely horrified because in the end, they were just so, it can was you, like... Can you like explain, like what do you mean by, by advertising, just like showing one's own buildings? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to give any names because I think it's a little bit too brutal at this point mm. based on what I'm about to say. But, um, you know, for example, one Swiss firm was... Um, really into the idea of showing film and they came up with all these kind of, you know, highfalutin ideas about what film was doing to their buildings. They sent me a five-page summary saying we're going to show eight films and each one is going to do something totally different that capitalizes on movement and all this stuff. So I was like, okay, you know, this this could work. And then they came and, you know, the the extent of the 
utilization of film was like a caressing, panning shot of a building. And of so it was like buildings. of one of their buildings. It was always about their buildings. And, you know, I'd ask them repeatedly to try and take their buildings out of context or kind of only to look at context and ignore the building. But it was just a lot of tracking shots that basically talked about like, you know, precious details and maybe one lone cleaner wiping a window pane or something like this to show like building in use. And, um, you know, I think as architects, we're used to trying to reframe our projects in the most positive light. And film just gives us a kind of more aggressively uh, regulative way of doing that. If you're not reconstructed or self-aware enough to actually want to be self-critical. So you saw it basically as an excuse to, it's an excuse to do the recent projects in some sense. It's an excuse to do the recent projects while deluding yourself into thinking that you're doing something innovative. Yeah. And and the, 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 the result is even worse than the slick rendering that we're all used to seeing. Right. Because it's like slick rendering times, you know, 24 frames per second times three <laughs> minutes. So it's like looking at 800 billion slick renderings instead of just one. And the compilation of all of them just seems to add up to something that's more offensive than if they'd just done a photograph. Alec then asked Joffer to talk through some of the projects that he thought were the most successful or that stood out in responding to the challenge of collaboration. You know, again, we, we asked people very specifically not to, to come with their own work. We didn't want someone coming with like a model of a project they'd just finished. Um, we wanted everyone to kind of recontextualize their work within a lens of, you know, some kind of external agency. So it's like working with collaborators to re-envision each other's projects or just to show something that you did not author, et cetera, et cetera. And I think as a kind of curatorial aspiration, the ones that, like, I, I mean, I think it was effective because the ones I like the most are ones that really embrace that. So um, one of my favorites, bizarrely enough, perhaps, would be Zaha's because I think she their office made this one giant installation which I thought was incredibly ugly um, and really not that nice as an object but what was great is that when pushed against a corner um, Zaha's response to the question you know what is your lineage who do you look to if you look at your work through someone else's eyes what do you see Uh, her response was to align herself with the kind of utopian engineers of the mid-20th century so Mm -hmm. she looked to Candela, Dieste, Friato, all these guys um, as a kind of forebearer. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, I think looking at the history of her work, one might align her more with constructivists or something even more painterly. And, and to think that she sees herself through these figures was really interesting. Mm. And the way that it was executed was really nice too because uh, she had her studio rebuild all of these seminal models by these engineers. Mm. And I remember there was one uh, Heinz Eisler model that was just unbelievably beautiful. Um, and the sad thing, of course, is that those objects kind of put hers to shame slightly because she sort of continued to insist on including her very kind of swoopy, plasticky, um, Corian objects. But then to have those alongside these other things I thought was really nice. I'm now realizing that all my favorite ones were by women. I didn't realize that, but (laughs) this is my... (laughs) I'm disproving everyone's theory that David only invited white men. Um, (laughs) 
But leading into the central pavilion, which is where Toshiko's thing is, so, you know, it's again, it's hard without any visuals, but Zaha's was in the middle of the Arsenale, actually two rooms in front of the Caracas exhibition, which we'll get to in a second, and Toshiko's was one of the first rooms in the central pavilion, and to get to the central pavilion, you had to walk under this very large, quite goofy-looking plywood structure. Mm -hmm. And that structure was done by a 31-year-old architect called Alison Crawshaw, um, a longtime collaborator of the British firm Muff. Alison did a project that was all about illegal construction in Italy, which is its own industry. Um, and there are all these planning laws that are built around the idea of illegal construction. So what she did is she created a town hall in a suburb of Rome for a city that doesn't have a town hall and where they meet at this one bar that's now being closed down. So suddenly they were left without a space. Um, Allison essentially leveraged the money from the Biennale uh, in a very impressive way. She milked us for everything she could. Being a 30-year-old you know, participant, we were basically raising fundraising just for her at certain points because you know, it's much easier to think that you want to give someone like her money than someone like Zaha, who has her own successful practice. But Allison basically took all the money we gave her, built a town hall for these people in Rome, deconstructed it, brought it to Venice, reconstructed it as a second facade for the Central Pavilion, in order to deconstruct it and bring it back and have it as like a permanent settlement. I liked very much the, uh, we had these great drawings by Raphael Moneo um, at the end of the exhibition in which he kind of denies a view of any of his projects, but it's all about kind of the, the role of the site plan in his work historically. Mm -hmm. And the drawings themselves were really stunning and I really liked the idea of implementing or instrumentalizing a purely architectural language through which to represent a kind of urban thinking. Um, that wasn't about, you know, film or it wasn't about digital media and it wasn't about like a whole other version of representation, but rather this hyper-specific thing that we all come to understand as purely architectural, but that doesn't talk about architecture and only talks about the city. So I like that a lot. Um, there was this series of little installations of photographs of Tomas Struth's recent work on the city and documenting the city. And I think those were quite beautiful, although I have to say I found them a bit sterile and... Um, what I liked about it was a development of these things. So there were four rooms dedicated to him in the Arsenale, these kind of small gallery environments. And again, it might not be a very like novel way of representing the city just through these kind of photographs, but it was also a very kind of um, evocative one, I think, because you'd kind of go through a bunch of rooms and then get to one and just be like, oh, here I am. Hmm. Um, and the last one that I would mention in this regard is uh, the exhibition that we did on Tempelhof, which is this abandoned airport in Berlin, the Nazi airport from the 30s. Um, and that, I thought, was represented really well. Because basically, rather than ever present an image of the entire site, the whole thing was told through this series of like really beautiful fragments. And I think part of them were kind of media, others were historical interpretations and evaluations of the site, um, and others more recent documentations of its use. So in a way, you see this kind of black hole in the middle of Berlin. I mean, it's right dead center in Neukölln, which is a kind of vibrant neighborhood just south of Kreuzberg. And therefore, it's, it's in the middle of everything, and it doesn't really exist as a site, and it has this totally contentious history. But then to kind of represent it technically through these kind of constitutive fragments, I thought was a really um, a nice way of pulling it off. Alec then turned the conversation towards some of the criticism of the Biennale, most notably that of Michael Kimmelman. His criticism was that the emphasis upon collaboration had led to an overall incoherence. 
you know, it's not my position to kind of defend what we did in the context of these reviews. And, you know, obviously, based on what I just said about the film, I don't think I need to say that I'm biased to want to protect the people that we exhibited by any means. But uh, I think what Kimmelman's review in particular highlighted to me, and a lot of the ones that I thought were perhaps unfairly negative, was actually one of the biggest failings of our Biennale, which was just to be completely overloaded with stuff. Um, you know, in the end, we had 74 different projects, mm -hmm. you can call them. Nearly every single one of those involved more than three authors. So when you start doing the math, you know, I was working with something like three to 400 architects for four months developing these projects. And the absolute polyphony of something that vast makes it not only incredibly watered down in a lot of directions, but also impossible to understand or comprehend or articulate or pattern or, you know, whatever it is that allows one to synthesize what they're seeing. And the thing about Kimmelman's review is that I found, I found it sort of curious that he couldn't be specific with his criticisms. They felt incredibly vast to me. And actually, the only thing he was specific about in the review were things that he liked and that he described in, in a lot of depth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, you know, it's easy to paint a picture of this thing as falling flat and failing at its aspirations um, when you use really generic language. But I think the biggest problem I, I take as our fault isn't that we didn't include enough women or that we didn't have enough East Asians or whatever it is, but rather that we provided something that could never result in a single message. Mm. And by a single message, I don't mean a one-liner. It doesn't have to just be a takeaway that you can say cities are good, public is bad, or something like this, but like, you know, any way of coming away with a, with a message. And I think that when you talk about the architectural exhibition, I mean, part of what really drew me to this project, especially when I talked to David about it before I started, was his intense desire to kind of reach out to the public and not allow the Biennale to fall under the trap it always falls under, which is basically being a showcase for architects, by architects, and actually not just for architects, but the majority being architecture students. And so if our aspiration was to somehow reach the public by talking about public issues and the space of the city, I think that we we could have done a much better job at doing that more succinctly. Mm -hmm. um, Do you think it would uh, improve the kind of concept of a BNL if we just began saying, well, this is a this is a kind of project that architecture students are going to come visit, and the public probably will take little to no interest. So we should just uh, conceive of it on those terms. It's too hard of a question, also because I think it addresses problems that I have much bigger with, like architectural discourse outside the realm of the exhibition. I mean, I think that like what really surprised me is with this in particular was how. I really thought we were putting together a thing that the public could read and could get excited by. And um, I personally know a lot of people who went to it who just despised the whole thing and just mm -hmm. said, like, architects are so up their own asses that they can't even see anything whatsoever. And, you know, I think we can all agree that that's true. But the, the scary thing is um, how even when we think that we're somehow breaking that yeah. paradigm, it's impossible. And... And so, yeah, I mean, I think the defeatist thing would be to say, let's just accept that this is what it is and the audience is who they are and let's just try and talk to them. But, you know, my on a personal level, my project will always be to try and, and get closer to the public and, and further away from talking to architecture students. Yeah. Um, so what, what, are this, what are some of the, what do you think some of the impediments to doing something like that, to changing the kind of well-worn paths we find ourselves in? 
I mean, frankly, I just don't think we really have the tools to do it right now. I mean, you know, part of me wants to say that something like the Biennale should celebrate architectural representation, for example. And so, you know, very early on, I, I was, you know, as the youngest, by far the youngest member on my team, I was the one fighting to try and stay conservative with what we were asking people to show. And again, to stay away from films and mixed media and QR codes and iPad apps and iPhone thing. I mean, this was like, you know, it was insane what, what middle-aged people want to do with technology and how anyone I know in my generation would be so averse to these things. And, um, and I mean, that's just kind of symptomatic, I think, of a bigger problem, which is that we don't know how to how to show work um, in a truly public setting. I mean, I think in a weird way, ultimately, I would I would imagine Sejima's exhibition was much more public friendly than ours was, yeah. despite that being a starting point for our criticism of how the Biennale is always constructed. It, and it's also like a question of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Sejima is talking about... Uh, sensorial pleasure, yeah. basically. Pleasure, right? So, but if you if you set your task, I mean, Sedgman doesn't set her task as talking about the city. Right. Well, no, exactly, and I think that that's maybe where where one could stumble, you know. Uh, and it's also, I mean, you know, in a kind of like Montagna definition, I mean, there's something that's just so easy about pleasure in that way, which is like go in and rub the shiny object, and I think that like. <laughs> That also, I mean, I think there's a place for it. I loved Sejima's Biennale, and maybe I could even go on the record saying I liked it more than ours, you know? Like, you know, I think there are things about it that you took away, and it was it was easy, and it was fun, and it was great. I guess part of, part of the thing that maybe comes to mind is just, like, <coughs> how does one make something difficult that's also pleasurable or like right. enjoyable? To but I think, I think there are ways, and actually one of my favorite exhibitions that I didn't mention earlier was the one that was by Toshiko Mori, um, who basically did this amazing thing where she, part of Toshiko's career was working with these modernist masters. So she's appended structures by Frank Lloyd Wright, by Mies, by Paul Rudolph. The fact of the matter is that she she's kind of working in these in the shadows of these old dead architects. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and she had this great idea to make these one-to-one scale white foam details, um, pairing a detail from her building with a detail from their building. Mm in a con- like contraposto type of thing. And so it would be an analogous detail, so a window detail or a brick detail, but it would be one of hers, one of Mises, one of hers, one of Frank Lloyd Wright's, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I, what was so wonderful about it, I thought, was that the end result were these kind of beautiful, abstract, sculptural totems that everyone loved. And again, going back to my friends who weren't architects who went to the show, I've never heard a single bad thing said about this thing. Okay. And at the end of the day, it's something that's like, on the one hand, you could accuse of being totally masturbatory as a kind of architectural project because it's just so fetishistic of this thing that no one else should care about. But on the other hand, it was made so consumable. That just about wraps up the conversation between Alec and Joffer on the Venice Biennale. After having talked about some of the difficulties of architecture's relationship to exhibition display, which is perhaps an overriding problem of all biennales, the conversation appropriately came full circle to the point at which they began, in a comparison of the various styles and agendas set by the different directors over the past several years. Yet having talked, in the meantime, about some of the challenges of media and the pragmatic difficulties of curation, the conversation now focused this comparison on an interesting dialectic between difficulty and pleasure, between the rational and the irrational. The next Biennale will be directed by Rem Koolhaas, leaving an interesting question as to how Koolhaas's unique brand of surreal hyper-rationality will tackle the difficult task of mediating architecture through the exhibition form. 
All that remains is for Alec and Joffer to say goodbye. So um, this is Alec Beerig signing off. Yes, I don't know how would I put it. But, well, thanks, Joffer. That was a great conversation. <laughs> you should probably try that without laughing. What do I say? Maybe some. I don't know. Just yeah. yeah. Can't you just say like thanks, Joffer? No, thanks, Joffer. That was great. Uh, thank you, Alec. It was fun. Everyone, go care to be an Alec. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to conversation on the 2012 Venice Biennale Common Ground between Jaffa Kolb, a curator of the Biennale, and Alec Beerig. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture.